0: Go ahead and open your Bibles with me to the book of Haggai chapter 1. Haggai chapter 1. Some of you are like, what in the world? Okay, we had a debate this morning. Thank you, Aaron. We've had a debate whether it's Haggai or Haggai, like I say it. How many of you pronounce it simply Haggai? You're boring. It's Haggai. And if you want to get really Hebrew, you've got to get the <laughs> right there. With the Hebrew language, so I'm going to go with Haggai the whole time. Maybe you'll convert me. But Haggai chapter one, right at the end of the Old Testament. If you're here this morning off a Bible, just slip up your hand, and we'll get you a Bible. You need that text in front of you, whether it's digital or printed. Just slip up your hand, and Matt will bring you a Bible. As you know, we've completed our uh, time in Mark's Gospel it was a 15-month study, and now we're on to this new biblical book. This is a minor prophet. Um, Just another question, another poll. How many of you have heard a sermon preached on Haggai? Just slip up your hand. How many of you heard a sermon on Haggai or Haggai? Zero. (laughs) Wow. Okay. One. Oh, Lynette, there you go. So Haggai is an awesome short book. Um, It's a shame that so few preachers have preached on this because I think it has a lot to say to today's church. All right, and that's our pattern here at Grace Athens. We like to go from Old Testament to New Testament, from Old Testament to New Testament. And some of you might wonder, why do you do that? Why is that the way you go about it? And my answer is this, whether you know this or not, we're on a 30-year quest together as a church, and that quest is this. We want to rediscover the true God of the Bible, and we want to rediscover and live together biblical Christianity. That's what we're up to, okay? The church of today, I believe, needs that right now with all of its current failures, with all of its different versions of Christianity. I've said many times, I'm not interested in conservative Christianity or progressive Christianity. I'm interested in biblical Christianity. What is Christianity according to Jesus and the scriptures, the prophets and the apostles? And that's why we go Old to New Testament. Okay, It's not because we want to be Bible nerds. Okay, I've never been accused of being a nerd. Um, I do like heady things. Nerds are cool. But we're not looking to be Bible nerds, okay? It's because we want to have a living encounter with the God of the Bible. That's why we do this, okay? And so that's what's going to take us into Haggai this morning. Uh, let's read the two opening verses. I only got two verses for you this morning. And it's going to be a bit of history so we know what we're looking at. Um, so let's look at uh, chapter 1, verse 1. It reads this. Let's pause there. Now, what is this all about, these opening two verses? We can answer that by first looking at a timeline. Look at verse 1. It gives a timestamp, stamp, right? Second year of Darius the king, that's the Persian king. Sixth month first day of the month is what it says. Scholars are actually able to calculate this. They synchronize the lunar calendar with what the Roman calendar used back then, and they have this date, verse 1, exactly, and most scholars say it's within a day or it's exactly the exact date. And it's this. It is the 29th of August. That's where we are. 520 B.C. So 520 years before Christ, the 29th of August. Let me give you a bigger timeline. If we can go to that. Oh, there it is. Okay. Sorry it's a bit fuzzy. I had to get a really um, big timeline to go over it all. But you have creation in the beginning. You have the call of Abraham. You have Exodus with Moses. You then have uh, the dynasty of David uh, with all the different kings, okay? And then what happens is the kingdom of Israel splits. You have Israel in the north, Judah in the south, and Israel is first invaded by the Assyrians, and they're exiled, and then not soon after, the southern kingdom, which is Judah, which is Jerusalem. There's so much happening in this part of the world right now that we know about. Um, Judah is then invaded by Babylon, and they're in exile okay, where Haggai comes in is right at the end of this timeline. They've come back from Babylon. They're no longer in captivity, but Jerusalem has been totally destroyed by these invaders. And now they have to come back and rebuild the temple. So you have um, Haggai as one of the last books of the Old Testament. That's where we are. Now, I, maybe, it's just, maybe it's just me. I've always wondered... What happened between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament? There's 400 years right there between your two testaments where the Bible records no history, no prophet, nothing. What happened during that time? Well, since you asked, I'll answer, okay? It's 400 years after the Babylonians came the Persians, and they ruled Israel for 200 years. It was, this would be 532 B.C. to 332, okay? Okay? And during that time, 200-year reign, the Jews had relative peace, relative prosperity. And then, if you remember from world history, Alexander the Great rises up. And he conquers. He's from Greece. He conquers so much of the world, including the Persians. And so now Israel, which was ruled by the Persians, is now under Alexander the Great's rule. He eventually dies. And then the Jews are ruled by a succession of Greek kings, kings that came after Alexander the Great. And the worst being a man by the name of Antioch, Antio, Ant, I'm going to get it, Antiochus Epiphanius in 175 B.C. Wicked dude. Very wicked. Let me tell you a few things. He made a decree outlying, out, outlawing Jewish worship and ordered them to worship Zeus instead of Yahweh. You want to anger the Jewish people, you do that. But that's not all. He then raided the Jerusalem temple, stole many of its property, many of its treasure, and then he set up an altar to Zeus, right in the middle of it. And then they sacrificed pigs on the altar. Which, if you think about the Jewish people, kosher, they don't deal with with pigs. Really nasty stuff. Then the Jews retaliated against this, and Antiochus responded by slaughtering a huge number of the Jewish people and and selling others into slavery. He issued decrees like performing the rite of circumcision, which is central to the covenant people. He said, if you do that, it's punishable by death. And then Jews everywhere were ordered to sacrifice to pagan gods, and some were even forced to eat pig's flesh. So, really nasty time between the two Testaments. Here's what happens. There's a man who rises up named Judas of Maccabeus. And he actually claimed to be the Messiah. We know that he wasn't, but he claimed to be the Messiah. And he led a successful armed revolt against these Greek kings, and they took back over Jerusalem, took back over the temple. This is where Hanukkah comes from, if any of you were wondering. So they had some independence, but it didn't last too long, because in 63 B.C., the Romans came marching in, and they took over Israel. So, when Jesus is born in the Gospel of Matthew, very first book of the New Testament, he's born under the Roman Empire, which we've seen as we've studied through Mark's Gospel. It's the best I can do in about four minutes. Make sense? Okay. So, it's just to give you your bearings. Let's go back to where we are today. It is 590 BC, so right there towards the end of the timeline. This is when Jerusalem and the temple are destroyed. This was God's judgment, if you read the prophets, using the Babylonian Empire. Here's what happened. Just imagine this happening today. Most of the Jewish citizens were rounded up, they were chained, and they were led and driven into exile. Now, this wasn't just a neighboring country. This wasn't like they were going to Jordan or going to Lebanon. They were going all the way to Babylon, which was a 900-mile march that you and your children would have to suffer together. If we go to that map, Babylon is modern-day Iraq. You see it right there on the right-hand side. It is about 50 miles south of Baghdad, okay? And they're all the way in Judah, in Jerusalem. And they went all the way. They didn't go through Saudi Arabia. They went up through Syria into Babylonia and down to their capital, Babylon. 900-mile march. They're in captivity in Babylon for 70 years. They were able to return to their homeland in 536 B.C. But here's the deal. Most that survived had been in Babylon captivity their whole life. They were born there. Anyone that was on that trek that went from Jerusalem to Babylon, uh, they lived their whole life and they died in Babylon. Most scholars believe there was a handful of children, young, young children, Kind of like today when we talk about Holocaust survivors. There's not that many left because they had to be children when this uh, wrongly happened to them. So was the same for these people. Scholars believe there was a handful of children that were let off that actually got to come back to Jerusalem. They remembered what it was like. Everyone else that came back, all they had ever known was Babylon. Most scholars believe Haggai was one of those, that he was a child and has the memories of that long, painful 900-mile journey. March, and he remembers Jerusalem in its glory, in its heyday, when the temple was in full service. Now, something to note before we move on that I think is really interesting and really shows you how God is sovereign is this. During the time of their exile, God the prophet, God has the prophet Jeremiah write a letter to those that are in exile in Babylon. Jeremiah was not taken into captivity. And so he sends this letter from Jerusalem all the way to Babylon, and we still have that letter today. That's in Jeremiah 29. We can bring it to the screen. Let me just read a little bit of it to you. So they're in captivity. He's here. He sends this letter. God has him send it and prophesies through him. This is what the letter said. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem. To the surviving elders of the exiles, and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce. He's telling them, be a part of their society, be peace, peaceful people. But then God says at the end of this letter through Jeremiah, if we can go to that, he says this, For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me, And come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I'll be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. You know how many years it was they were in Babylon? Seventy. Seventy. God prophesies through this prophet the exact amount of years that they would be in exile. And now he's bringing them home. But he's bringing them home with a divine project. There's a project, an assignment he has in mind. Remember, when the Babylonians invaded Jerusalem, they destroyed the temple completely. God was sending them back now to rebuild it. Okay? And God had Isaiah prophesy this sequence of events exactly. 140 years before they happened. Take a look at this one. 140 years before it happened, Isaiah wrote this. Remember, Babylonians have not invaded. Nothing's happened. 140 years before. He writes this. Who says of Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited, and of the cities of Judah, they shall be built, and I will raise up their ruins. Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, And he shall fulfill all my purpose, saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built, and of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. I'm telling you, the Old Testament is fascinating. By the way, you ever done a Bible check? Two-thirds of your Bible is the Old Testament. Fascinating stuff. You can learn a lot about God there. Isaiah mentions a man named Cyrus. You saw it right there in the text. Who is Cyrus? Well, God alerts Isaiah 140 years in advance of the future king that God is going to use to fulfill his purpose to bring his people back. This man hasn't even been born yet. Cyrus doesn't exist. And yet God knows in God's eternal mind that he's going to raise up Cyrus. He wasn't even a Babylonian king. He's a Persian king. And God, through a series of events, is going to use him, and they're going to invade Babylon, take it over, and now he will be in charge of the Jewish people. Cyrus calls him by name. 140 years of events. You know we have one of the earliest copies of the prophet Isaiah in the Bible Museum? This is real history. Isaiah mentions by name in the 28th verse, and that's what happened. Cyrus became king of Persia. They took over Babylon. And look what he says in the next verse, Isaiah 45, 1. He says, Thus says the Lord, 140 years in advance, to his anointed to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped, to subdue nations before him, and to loose the belts of kings, to open doors before him, that gates may not be closed. And so Cyrus is the king in history who ordered the return of the Jewish people back to their homeland. God used this king to send his people back with the divine assignment to rebuild the temple. Take a look at it, 2 Chronicles. They record this history. It says, thus says Cyrus, king of Persia. So This is quoted from Cyrus, this is what he said. The Lord, the God of heaven, granted he's not a Jew by the way, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth And he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you, all his people, may the Lord his God be with him. Let him go up. So in 536 BC, the people make the long 900-mile march back to Jerusalem with this project in mind to rebuild the temple. It's the dawn of a new age for Israel. Their nation had been destroyed, but now God was resurrecting it. But listen to what happens. 16 years come and go, and they've done zero to minimal work on rebuilding the temple. This is the whole reason they were sent back. But 16 years pass. What are they doing? Why are they waiting? What's holding them up? This is when God raises up an elderly prophet named Haggai with this problem in mind. That's where we are in the timeline. You got me? That was a lot, a lot of history. That's where we are. They're back, 16 years passed, barely any work's been done. Something must be done. I'm going to raise up a prophet. An elderly man, who was a child most likely, who remembers the Babylonian invaders, remembers the 900 mile trek, he remembers the 900 mile trek back, it's been 16 years, nothing's happened, I'm going to raise him up. He's going to speak to my people. Take a look at verse 2. That's why he says, he opens with this. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. There's a great scholar named Joyce Baldwin. I'm reading different books right now, and they all seem to quote Joyce. She said this, the ruined skeleton of the temple was like a dead body decaying in Jerusalem. The ruins were still there, and nothing had been done. So why haven't they completed the Lord's assignment? Ezra 264 tells us about 50,000 Jews made that trip from Babylon back. Now, when they arrived, they faced some major difficulty. There was four big ones in general. Let me list them for you. The first was this. The land was unsuitable for farming. And their ancestral homes were in, they were in disrepair. And so when they got there, all their farmland had been grown over. Some scholars even think that the, that the area was becoming arid. The milk and honey land of promise was becoming arid. It was hard to grow co- crops there. Second thing is that some Jewish people um, never went into exile. The lower classes were not deported off to Babylon. They stayed there, and they had taken over property that wasn't theirs. So there was all kinds of infighting with the Jewish people. Imagine if you came back and someone you know, was squatting in your house. still happens today. Third thing is neighboring enemies opposed the rebuilding of the temple. They were f- constantly fighting off invading skirmishes and, and small militia. And then fourthly, their initial efforts to rebuild the temple, they they were discouraged by this because it was so small in comparison to the awesome first temple that Solomon had built uh, many centuries before. So all these trials resulted in little progress in the first 16 years. The furthest they got was in the middle, I mean, I I think of almost like a whale, you know, like a massive carcass that's fallen up um, on, on the beach. And this is kind of the ruins of the temple. What they had done, as far as they got, was to rebuild the original altar so they could do sacrifices. And it says that they, they also started to lay the foundation, kind of the concrete foundation of the temple. But that's it. Now, I was tempted to do this. Maybe, maybe you're not. But before you point the finger at them and say, you know, what are you doing? This is why you were sent back. You didn't realize that these pioneers were under a lot of opposing circumstances, but the largest hurdle that they had to climb was not external opposition, but internal. This is where I think it speaks to us. The largest hurdle they had to climb was their spiritual apathy. Their spiritual apathy. In 16 years' time, they had restored the land for crops. They had rebuilt their ancestral homes and estates, but a spiritual amnesia had set in. And they forgot why God had sent them back in the first place. God had a divine assignment for them, but they got comfortable. How many of us have a certain sense of what God has called us to do or the person he's called us to be? Or or that one assignment we had to to really lean into this, grow in this, start that relationship, invest that money, volunteer, whatever it was. How many of us, we've had a sense that God was leading us a certain way, but we just kind of waited. We weren't faithful to take the first step and the second step and the third step. We got comfortable. That's what's happening here. And I would argue... That the church today has done a similar thing. The American church. What we're going to find over the next several weeks in Haggai is that there are many connections to what the prophet said to God's people then that need to be said to God's people now. I'll put it in the most plain American English I can think of. The American church has become fat and comfortable. Does that work for you? Fat and comfortable. It's fattened itself on the American lifestyle over a biblical lifestyle. It's fattened itself on politics over people. I mean, how much during COVID were politics put above people in the American church? You were judged by whether you had a vaccine or didn't have a vaccine, whether you wore a mask or didn't wear a mask. When we look back, it was ridiculous. We're acting like children in the American church during that time. The American church has fattened itself on shallow sermons over over substance, on money over miracles, or on moral failure over mission. There isn't a week that doesn't go by, it seems like, post-COVID, where another church leader has fallen from their position. And I think if we really step back and take a look at this, historically, it's this. The American church, we've got more money and more equipment, more platform and technology, more programs and more influence than the church has ever had in its history. But why so little fruit? When when you compare the American church to other churches around the world, and you see the explosive growth and mission and sacrifice and, and all the different things, It's striking. Ones that have far less resources than we have. The American church, not all churches, but in general, the American church has become way too comfortable. The American church, I believe, needs a prophet like Haggai to set us back on track. That's what he did back then. That's what I'm hoping he'll do today. Today. To remember why we're here in the first place. That's what God did with him back then. Verse 1 again. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. God raised up a prophet. This is what he does. And I believe that God wants to raise up Grace Athens I believe as a prophetic witness to a decaying American church. If you want to know, man, what's your real vision, you know, John? What are you really hoping to happen over the next 10, 20, 30 years? I'm hoping that our church becomes a witness of what it means to really follow the scriptures and the spirit. That's what I want. That we wouldn't get caught up in money or programs or politics over people that we would not be perfect. We are sinners. But by God's grace, we would be able to witness to the true ecclesia, the true church that Jesus had in mind when he birthed it at Pentecost. And we'd be a faithful witness. We're not going to be the biggest. We're not going to have the most money. We're not going to have the most influence. I want us to be faithful and fruitful. Pure. And walking in God's power. That's what I want. I want the church of Acts. They weren't perfect, but they were faithful. And so we need God to stir in us so that we can witness to other churches that maybe have fallen fallen off the way of God. We can witness to them a better way, a more biblical way. That's why I want us to be a Word and Spirit church that takes 30 years, that long 30-year trek through all of Scripture so that we really rediscover the true God of the Bible, the true gospel according to Scripture, so that we might be a biblical church and live out biblical Christianity. That's why our project is what it is. It's my conviction that the church, the American church, doesn't need more money, more programs, or more influence. They need more of God. They need a group of humble men and women who are willing to return to the living God of Scripture and Spirit. Amen? James, Jesus' brother, talks about, don't just be hearers of the Word, but also be doers of the Word. Hear and do God's Word. And that's what I want us to be. Our, our role, make this really clear, our role is not to change the world. I don't, I, you won't see that in scripture. You won't see that kind of main biblical message to go change the world. That's become some hot topic in today's world. Millennials really grabbed onto it, but even the millennial church has grabbed onto it. Our role is not to change the world. I believe what we need to do is first change ourselves, change the church to witness to a different world, the world of the kingdom of God, where Jesus is Lord and I am not. I believe when the church becomes the true church, the world will look in and see something that they're interested in. You go back, you read Acts, you read the early church, they weren't going around trying to change the world and get everyone into their churches. They were going around in the power of the Spirit and the love of Jesus, and people said, something's different here. They welcomed women and gave them positions of real leadership. They clothed the naked. They went into prisons. They did work internationally with missions. They built hospitals. They set up the first orphanages. They gathered on the Lord's Day faithfully, and they worshiped, and they worshiped. They took the Lord's bread and the wine. They did these faithful things of Scripture, and God used them and exploded his kingdom through the church across that Greco-Roman world. And so I want us to be the change that we want to see. Again, we're not perfect, but we want to be faithful and we want to be fruitful. And I believe the Spirit of God will use Haggai the prophet to do it now as he did it then. Amen?